Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. This is Dr. Daniel Israel. I'm your host on the show for the next short of an hour. And it is such a important and difficult time for all of us because we are faced with so much uncertainty. And certainly over this weekend, we've seen a very mild and probably calm COVID situation in South Africa possibly turn itself on the head with people asking lots of questions. I've certainly known my own, from my own perspective, I'm flooded with a furry of uh, WhatsApps and, and questions about contacts and new people getting COVID who have already had COVID. And really, we, in some ways, we feel like we're at the beginning. But in other ways, we're way into this pandemic and we've learned so much over this time and, and, and our experts have too. And they continue to guide us and keep us um, calm. So today, I think very aptly, it gives me great pleasure to welcome someone who's not a stranger to HiFM by any means. He's been interviewed many times and ran shows on HiFM before, and that's Professor Barry Shub. Um, welcome to the show, Prof. Thanks, and thank you very much for having me. Great pleasure to be back on HiFM. So, so as we all, as we know, most of us, Prof. Barry Shub is founded the NRCD, which is the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, and they really are the at the forefront of tracking and reporting COVID. And he is the chair of the vaccine MAC committee to the government, and also on our community level, he is a very big voice in terms of what we should be doing, shouldn't be doing. I think that we all know that Prof. went into into um, uh, retirement a few years ago. Or one to two, and he's probably <laughs> do, being the most active he's ever been in his career at the moment. So, um, sorry to keep punishing you, Prof, with all the all, all the, the the questions and the the pressures on a daily basis. But we yeah. all appreciate your 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 tireless dedication to this community. Thanks a million for that introduction. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally deserve it, but uh, anyway, thank you very much. Still appreciate it. Okay, so let's let's dive stra- straight in. So, so Prof, th- this. This weekend, or we should, we should say last week, I'll actually say from my perspective, I got wind on, I think it was Thursday morning, that the reason why we've been seeing, well, probably the reason why I've been seeing increased COVID cases in the last uh, few weeks is yeah. because a new variant had been identified. So I think let's start at the beginning and just to, to catch people up to speed. Right. Can you just tell us, um, we, we know that we, most of us know, lay people know what a virus is. Yeah. Um, and we understand that viruses can mutate or change. But can yeah. you just tell us a little bit more about mutation? Is it a common thing? Does it change the condition completely? And was this expected? Yeah. Well, then let's start from the beginning. You know, as you say, a virus is it's, uh, it's just really a piece of genetic material which has got a, a protein coat around it. Uh, and viruses differ. Some mutate. In other words, when I say mutate, in other words, their genetic constitution changes, and as a result, they substitute various building blocks in their structure. And when they do the substitution, what we call mutation, um, it, cha- it can change the characteristics and the personality of that particular virus. And because viruses are such simple things, they're really on the kind of what we call the threshold of life. Some call them inorganic, some call them living things. Um, they do change readily. 
Some viruses change much more than others. If you look at saying like influenza or HIV, those viruses do change very, 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 very readily and very, very quickly. Uh, and that's why they do change and particularly what we call their antigenicity. In other words, how they behave in the immune system. Now, uh, COVID or coronavirus, coronavirus is the cause of COVID. SARS-CoV-2 is this particular virus. It is, it is a fairly changeable or what you call mutable virus. In other words, it does mutate quite readily. Not as much as influenza and not as much as HIV, but more than many of the other viruses, more than the measles and the mumps and the germ measles and the polio and so on. And as it changes, it does substitute some of its building blocks. Uh, and, uh, what's worried about, th- what's worrying about this particular variant, which is now called Omicron, that's the way it's actually pronounced, Omicron, uh, it's, the technical name was 11529. This particular one has got a lot of mutations, a lot of changes, more than any other variant. And in fact, this variant now is totally different to all the other variants. That's why the WHO were very quick in giving it its name of Omicron, uh, much more quicker than they go to any of the other variants. So, as I said, it's a completely different variant, unrelated to the others. And this is why there's a lot of things we just don't know about it. The one thing we do know, it's got many more mutations. It's got something like over 30 mutations. And in the, unfortunately, in a critical part of the virus, what you call the spike protein, that's the outermost part of the virus, which the virus attaches to cells to establish the infection. And many of these mutations, are, or over 30, are in this particular and that's what gives us a lot of cause to worry. That's the one thing. The second thing is that the actual constellation, the way that these mutations are uh, positioned in the virus, is also unique. And again, we don't know enough about it. So this early days, we're still in a learning curve. We're still studying this virus. We still need to know how transmissible it is, how infectious it is, and does it cause more severe, and does it escape from the immunity which the vaccine elicits. This is what we're still trying to learn uh, but remember, this is a new virus. We've only had it for what a week or so, so it still it still is early days. So it's interesting to hear that you call it a new virus, and it's also uh, you've touched. I think that's really a great intro because you've touched on a lot of the the different like topics we can delve a little deeper into here. But so if you can start with the structure, um, I, I think that. You know, obviously, being a virologist, you, obviously you deal with viruses, as you've said, and you've seen mutations, as you as you mm. said, in influenza, HIV, other other viruses. Now, a question that I've been asked, and is we know that the spike protein or is the part of the virus that helps it to enter the cell, and that's what's probably the most important part. And we'll yeah. talk a bit about vaccines and how they work with that too. But does it necessarily mean that because there are more mutations on the spike protein? that the virus is going to be more effective in terms of entering cells. I mean, you've said that we don't know whether it causes more serious disease. But yeah. in the experience of other viruses, when you get viruses that have mutation, and mm. even if it's 40, 50 mutations on the equivalent of a spike protein, does it always make the virus more virulent, or can it actually make the virus more mild? Yeah, uh, in fact, in fact, most mutations aren't good for the virus. Most are actually lethal to the virus. It's a minority, in fact, a fairly small minority, uh, which then go on to make the, vi- the virus more sinister. More sinister, either more being more in- contagious, more infectious, or ducking the immunity caused by the vaccines, or causing more severe disease. That occurs actually in, the, in a small minority, but you must remember what happens. Uh, there is a selective pressure 
kind of a, a Darwinian selective pressure uh, to escape from the immunity. So in other words, if somebody's immune system is not up to par, they're partially immunosuppressed, they can't clear the virus adequately. And that remnant virus keeps on multiplying. And those mutations which allow the virus to escape from the immunity are those uh, uh, virus strains which will then get enriched, those strains which got the mutations. And that's why we get these variants. It's a selected for by partially immune individuals or people that are not vaccinated and, of course, allowing the virus to replicate. So I understand that, just to, to put it in very simple terms, because that's the job of a GP and often to, to connect the patients to the real experts. But is, is in that, um, what you mean by Darwinian terms, so to speak, is that if you have a virus that mutates and becomes less um, virulent or effective, let's say, by nature, it's not going to be able to spread through the community where you get a virus that has good mutations for it. It will be able to spread through the community, and therefore that's why it's almost a, 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 an evolution of the virus. And but, but I must ask you at the same time. I mean, over a period of we've had COVID for about a year and we're going on two years soon. Um, is this a reasonable amount of time to get a Darwinian effect of a mutating virus, or or, or could we possibly? I mean, you see, I'm trying to unpack whether this virus. This yeah. mutation could really just be an arbitrary mutation that we have picked up and it doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the clinical outcomes of COVID. Yeah. Look, the, these um, these mutations are random. They are completely random. Uh, it, it's just it's, uh, a mutation is actually a mistake. It's a mistake in the ability of the virus to make a copy of itself. Uh, obviously, uh, in any biological organisms, uh, the, the ideal is for a copy to be the exact copy uh, of the parental gene, as it were. But uh, unfortunately, I read the, the, um, the replication mechanism, uh, and particularly in viruses which are so simple, they don't have any corrective uh, machinery to be able to correct these mistakes, as do higher organisms. So they readily and very often and very frequently make these mistakes, and those mistakes are the mutations. But, you know, talking about, uh, there's a very interesting, I should say, kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. And it may be because this virus, this particular Omicron variant, has got so many mutations uh, and uh, it's got this kind of unique constellation uh, of mutations, it might be might work against the virus. Uh, because remember, what we got, what we had up to now was the Delta variant. And the Delta variant was really the kind of superman of viruses. The Delta variant was highly transmissible, spread very, very easily. So that's quite a formidable opponent that Omicron's got to compete with. Um, and what we're really hoping paradoxically is that Delta's going to win the fight because we do know that Delta does respond very well to the vaccines and it looks like Omicron's not going to respond so well to vaccines. So this tussle... But unfortunately, I think Omicron is going to take over. When I say unfortunately, from the limited data that we've got up to now, it looks like Omicron seems to be the major dominant uh, variant uh, displacing Delta. But hopefully we're going okay, to... Okay, so we, we, you've brought up two very interesting points, which we'll pick up soon. One is how this Omicron works against or with the vaccines. Um and the other is, is, is this, this, you know, the fittest virus winning the war. I, I just remind our listeners how in South Africa we got the beta variant and that we really, really thought would spread and Delta won the war there. And that certainly, yeah. 
it did actually help us because the AstraZeneca vaccine was resistant to the to the South African or the beta variant, but not so much to the Delta, and therefore there's a positivity of Delta, as you can see there. So yeah. I'm going to take a pause now, if we can, for a second. We're going to do uh, we're going to go to our ads, and we'll be back with Professor Barry Shum from or Emeritus Professor from NRCD just after this break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to the show. I'm interviewing Professor Barry Sherb, who's well known to all of us, and we're talking about Omicron, the new word that is probably on everybody's minds this week. So, um, Prof. Barry, you brought up a very important uh, point, and I think that we must dive into the clinical side of this now, and that is that, you know, w- will this virus be covered by the vaccines? Now, to, to start this discussion, I'm, I- I'm seeing a lot of patients through my own practice, and we're certainly seeing it from Hatsola and the community, who have contracted COVID in the last week or two, and the, I would say the majority of them, thankfully, because it shows good behavior on our community side, have been vaccinated. So, you know, certainly from a, just on the ground, we all know people at the moment who have COVID or know of people, and we all know people who have been vaccinated of COVID. Does that mean that vaccines are not working at all? And, and what do we take from that? Yeah. No, that's a very, very important point, uh, Dan. Yeah, certainly what they are, there, there are, there are two things which are being noticed. One of them, of course, is that the epidemic is expanding. Uh, but fortunately, it's expanding mainly in the great majority of cases with mild infections. Uh, there hasn't been any significant uptick. There's a bit of an uptick, but not too significant um, in the hospital admission surveillance. That's the one thing. The second thing, as you very rightly pointed out, is that the majority of people seem to have been completely uh, vaccinated, fully vaccinated, I should say, fully vaccinated. So there does seem to be some degree of breakthrough. Now, is that just because of that? we're now at the start of the fourth wave and there are just many, many more cases now? Or is it due to the fact that Omicron, which is driving this expansion, is relatively resistant to the vaccine? Now, I say relatively. We do, we are, we are, we're still waiting for definite confirmation. But it does appear in these early days that the vaccine is still very effective in preventing against severe disease, uh, severe disease and hospitalization. That, of course, is the main, the major aim of the vaccine, to stop the kind of uh, stress on the healthcare system and obviously people getting seriously ill. Now, it does appear to be pretty effective in stopping the severe disease. Obviously, it appears to be a lot less effective in stopping people getting infected and people getting mild disease. But I must stress and I must underline, this is still early days. We can't say anything with with total confidence at this stage. So I hear the disclaimer, and I, I think that's responsible. And I think that, you know, certainly from, from us as clinicians, we should be, as doctors, as a medical fraternity, we should be very careful in terms of the statements we make and the, you know, because I, we can talk about this just now, about, you know, what went on last week and the, the, the announcements. But I must say that given the disclaimer, just from a, from a clinician's perspective on the ground, we have mm-hmm. seen... Obviously, this is now the fourth time we're going through this uptick. And the increase in cases started about two weeks ago, not, not yesterday or the day before. And the patients who have, who have contracted COVID certainly are, are, are all mild. I mean, I have no serious patients at the moment under my care with, with COVID pneumonia. Yeah. And most of the GPs would say the same. And just to make our 
community feel a little bit more reassured because this is something I think we all need at this time. Is yeah. that if you look, if one looks at the Hatzola cases of, of, of admissions to hospital through, through their doctors to hospital for oxygen and all the things we know about COVID pneumonia, we're sitting at none or little to none at the moment of new cases. Yeah. So it's certainly very, very encouraging. And I feel that, that, um, you know, we'll see, as you say, as in the weeks to come. But if this is the case and yeah. Omicron landed up being the predominant variant, um, it would actually be a big win for our community, for our world, because you would have a mild spread of a COVID, a mild spread being spread amongst the world. Yeah, then uh, yeah, when one would like to kind of speculate uh, along those lines, uh, the only problem is that we do have uh, uh, individuals who do have underlying comorbidities, for example, uh, and also we do have people that don't whose immune systems don't give them an adequate immune response to the vaccines. So the, those are the two issues. And the third issue is that the vaccines are very good, but they're not perfect. Remember, these are our first generation of vaccines. So, you know, if we're talking about even you know, the Pfizer's with 94, 95% protection against severe disease, it still leaves a gap. There's still a gap of 5 to 6% of people that still, if they are infected, could get severe disease. And some of those, of course, could die. So it's not totally. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is that if you've got a lot of people getting infected, you would still have a significant number getting severe disease. Now, I agree, totally agree with you. Fortunately, we haven't seen that. But I, let me put that in bold and capital letters as yet. As yet, we haven't seen it. But I think we still need to be careful. There still is a vulnerability for obviously a small minority, but that minority, if you're talking about numbers, could be big if a large number of people are infected, getting severe disease. And we still need to be kind Absolutely. of cognizant of that. Yeah. So we go back to our, our um, principles and our, our, our really the, our ideology of, of, you know, one life is enough for a whole community to, to change its whole behavior for. And, and like Prof, you're saying very, very clearly and correctly, so I mean, if a condition has a 1% or 2% mortality, one percent mortality, and you're seeing that amongst across millions of people, you're going to have a huge disaster on your hands. So, sure. you know, I, I, I'm not for saying for one moment that we should try and let this run run free, but I do think that my hope is that in the long run, as the as the COVID world mutates or the COVID mutates and the world gets more vaccinated, we'll be able to live with this virus more. Yeah. Um, we certainly yeah. saw in the Delta wave that a few of the academics and I don't know if these were study-based, but showed us that there was an estimated 50% reduction in the chances of spreading or catching COVID if you had been vaccinated. Now, um, is this? I mean, are there any studies that have shown that this is correct? Um, often the people who are not for the vaccine say, well, you can get it and spread it anyway. Are there studies that show that, you're, that the chances are reduced? And do you expect the same thing with Omicron? Yeah, well, certainly with Delta, that has been shown. I mean, uh, the the uh, effectiveness of the vaccine to prevent infection itself, um, both the Pfizer as well as the Johnson Johnson, uh, is fifty to sixty percent of of getting infected. So that that is that is very significant because uh, you have most people being infected. You could stop the spread of the infection quite quite readily. Uh, you know, they, you can do the calculations with what's called the reproductive number. But even at 56% preventing infection, uh, if a high enough coverage, it would make a certainly, uh, would make a big dent 
in the spread of the of the of the um, of the infection. When we come to Omicron, we don't know at this stage. Uh, the the at the moment the epidemic at the where the epidemic is the uh, reproductive number. Now the reproductive number measures how contagious the virus is. Uh, if the, if you have a reproductive number of two, it means that one infected individual will infect two susceptible individuals. Now, normally it hovers around one. If it drops below one, then the epidemic comes under control. If it goes above one, then, it, then of course, there's expansion. So up to now, it's been between 1.2 and 1.3 and dropping to 0.7 and 0.6. At the height of the wave, the second wave and the third wave, it goes to about two. And what we've got now, as it's expanding, is 2.3, 2.4. So we're actually now at the apex of the previous waves in terms of the reproductive number, in terms of how the virus is spreading. Just to give you some kind of audition, uh, some kind of idea, uh, background where we are to, at the moment with the epidemic. Okay, so that, that's very interesting, especially that, that that info is so is so new, and we are already seeing that. Um, yeah. We're going to take an ad break for now and come back to to Prof Shub, and I'd like to talk a little bit about just you know how to translate this into our behaviour, etc., which we're getting a lot of questions about straight after this break. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care. So, Prof. Shur, we're talking now about Omicron and how it's affecting our lives. Um, we certainly the questions that doctors, clinicians, physicians, GPs get asked all the time is, you know, doctor, I came into contact with someone, or I think I came into contact with someone, and we saw that at the beginning of COVID, there was there was a pretty defined character of what, what a contact was. And we said that at the beginning of COVID-19, anybody who had been within, I think it was first 1.8 and 1.5 meters or within someone else, um, for more than 10 or 15 minutes was considered a contact. Now, we then we then learned as a, as a world that, that really the studies showed that masks make a big difference. And we, we, there was the whole discussion about which masks were better and adequate, not adequate. But certainly there we started seeing a little bit of like fraying on the on, on opinions as to whether people were exposed to each other with masks on, whether or not they need to quarantine to try and spread the to, to avoid the spread of this condition. Then we saw in Delta that certainly across the world it was just, as you've just said the R number was high and people really felt that or it was said that the virus was more contagious. And now we're looking at what possibly, because of these many mutations in Omicron, might be even more contagious as a virus. Yet, we still have to give people advice on the ground as to, have you been exposed, haven't you, do you need to quarantine, and for how long? Um, do we have new guidelines in this? Are they unchanged, and where are we standing with this at the moment? Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much for that question. Because yeah, I often get that. In fact, I often get people sending me an inquiry which is about a page long, giving a whole history of I'm the, the, I'm the same as you, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think the kind of general principles remain unchanged. Uh, I know there have been overseas, and this is what sometimes people who troll the internet come back to me with, that the uh, the CDC says this, and uh, Public Health England says this, and the European uh, CDC says, says the following, and so on. Our recommendations have been unchanged. In other words, it's the same contact, as you mentioned, you know, we're coming within, uh, as you say, it does vary. I like to say six feet, because that's a, kind of the height of a... Uh, because no one knows what a put is in South Africa. <laughs> 
Uh, well, it's not hard to have a reasonably tall man uh, within 15 minutes. I think it's irrespective of masks. And the reason for that is that masks are extremely effective, as you say. But it's just that, you know, do people, are they how meticulous they are with masks and so, and, and so on. So we, we say independent of masks. Um, obviously, someone's got to make a judgment call. You know, someone is sneezing or shouting or singing or coughing. Then, you know, you've got to kind of make allowances for that. But Jerry, it's, it's that kind of distance for that kind of duration. The reason that we haven't changed it, uh, because the, the other thing which does come into the equation is whether they are vaccinated. Uh, and there have been some recommendations overseas that if both the person that has a breakthrough infection and the person that comes into contact, if both are vaccinated, do we still need to go into quarantine? Uh, and now our, our recommendations is yes. The reason is twofold. One of the, uh, one, for one reason is that, uh, we are in an expanding part of our epidemic. We're now going to our fourth wave and second of all because of Omicron. So the recommendations are unchanged. The same contact as you, uh, same, um, uh, parameters of contact that you just mentioned, Dan, we'd, we'd still apply. They haven't changed. So, that. so I, I must okay. say, and I, this is an open discussion is that we certainly have seen clinicians and not, not people who, who are unknowledgeable about COVID t- telling patients that if you're exposed to someone and you're in an outdoor environment and you both wore your masks meticulously the whole time, um, that would not be an exposure. And the truth is that, you know, like as you rightly said, it is so much a judgment call because we know so little about the exact nature, especially with mutations that we need to listen to each scenario and try and give a correct judgment or suck for those, you know, that's relevant to you on each judgment, on each scenario. Yeah. Um, I think, though, what is interesting is that we see how in the world, um, we see how Israel went to a seven-day quarantine after contact, and we've seen countries in the world that have a five- or seven-day quarantine and then testing. And I understood that the, re- the main reason for them changing to this was it was ready to get the buy-in of the public because – because if you're telling people to quarantine to the other extreme to four, 10 or 4, say 14 days, they, they aren't going to do it and they're going to justify why the exposure wasn't really an exposure. Yeah. Are you grappling with these kind of issues from an NICD perspective with you yeah. and your colleagues? And is there a move to try and, you know, see whether we can make the quarantine periods a little shorter or a bit more reasonable so that more people do them? Yeah. Look, I think we do need to distinguish between what's isolation and what's quarantine. I, I think that's quite important. Isolation is somebody Absolutely. that is infected. How long do they have to be isolated? Um, and if it's uncomplicated, now we're mild to moderate, we say eight days. We've actually reduced it. It used to be at one stage 14 days and came down to 10. It's actually eight days. It's been eight days for quite a while now, in fact. And I was uh, eight days after the onset of symptoms or after when they test positive. Obviously, so that means, sorry, just to interrupt you, that people, sure. for example, in our community on the Hatsola program, after eight 24-hour periods of from when they started symptoms should be safe to go back into the community. Is that correct? Uncomplicated, correct, yeah. If they're hospitalized, of course, it's eight days after they are clinically well. Okay. Yeah, yeah so it's uncomplicated, eight days, yeah. Because that's basically, we know that the virus is excreted in the nose, in the throat and, and the, in the nose, probably for about six, five to six days. So we add a couple of days for outliers, and that comes to eight days. That's the isolation of somebody that's infected. Quarantine means somebody that's not infected who comes into contact with somebody who is infected. 
Now that is that that measures a different thing. That measures what's called the incubation period. In other words, from the time a person gets potentially infected to the time that they actually show symptoms. Now there there is there's quite a wide range. The majority of uh, incubation periods, most people, is relatively short. It's about three, four, five days. But you do get a significant number, which could be six, seven, eight days. And that's why it's a bit longer. That's why that's 10 days. Now, the, the, we do make, and I, 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 for completeness sake, I must mention it. For example, healthcare workers, where there's a stress in the hospital situation, and we can't afford to have many healthcare workers off ill. So we do make an exception there that after five days, they can get a test, a PCR test, not the rapid test, a PCR test, and if they're then negative, then they can return to work. Now, a lot of people hear about this. Can we extrapolate it to themselves? The answer is really no, and the reason is this. The healthcare worker will go back to work with full personal protective equipment, PPE, uh, and is in a situation which is quite different to the person who's not in a healthcare uh, environment. And this is why we'd be very reluctant to make that recommendation to the general public. So the general public, I think we have to stick as much as possible to 10 days. You know, if there's really kind of room for something, we can make it nine days, but certainly not much less than that. We would hate to go to the sixes and the seven and eight days. So it's interesting because we see first world countries who arguably have good scientific infrastructure, medical, um, Israel, the UK, etc., doing yeah. seven days or seven days in a test. Are they being irresponsible in terms of cutting it short? No, I don't think irresponsible. You know, I, I think we've got a, in South Africa we've got a different, slightly different problem. First of all, we've got a, a population which is not as well covered with vaccine, so we've got yeah. more virus which is circulating. Uh, obviously, now more recently with the Omicron, that's a different story as well. And also, we're now in an expanding phase of an of a of a wave. So I think we do need to be a bit more cautious. Obviously, it, you know, the, the, there's no absolute black and white. These are kind of observational studies, um, and they, they, they're not totally foolproof. So, you know, 10 days, it used to be 14 days, in fact, then it was down. So now we have made that, that allowance going to 10 days. Uh, I, I think 10 days is a reasonable precaution. Obviously, right. on a case-to-case basis, we can, you know, kind of make a judgment call, uh, in terms of how, um, how risky the, the, uh, uh, the contact was, uh, what kind of contact it was, and make a judgment call. But I'd really be hesitant to make it much shorter than 10 days. Okay, so, Prof, you, you are really a fountain of, of knowledge and of, of information. So I'm going to try and even push our ad break out a little bit later to just crank get one thing in because I know you do have a commitment before the next hour, so we have a lot still I want to cover in a short time. Um, it seems like South Africa is the lead or leader in the world, certainly this week. Um, of the discovery of variants. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard, I know that you're, that you've done a lot of work in HIV and I've heard that part, you know, first of all, from an infrastructure perspective, the one reason why is because we're dealing with viruses in this country, possibly more than other places. I've also seen the theory that because some of our population is immunocompromised, this might be the reason why that if it is indeed coming from South Africa, why a variant could be more likely to develop here than it would overseas. Can you give us a little bit of South African context in terms of why are we leading this? We certainly don't need other things. And and is our population more at risk of variation in the virus than others? Uh, then I guess I get so often asked that question. But, you know, if you look at it, 
Um, okay, we've had two variants, but the, but uh, the first of all, the uh, the ancestral strain came from China. The alpha alpha variant came from the United Kingdom. The beta did come from South. It was first detected. First detected doesn't come from, but first detected in South Africa. That that would then be called the the South African variant. The gamma is a Latin American. We haven't even seen it yet. The uh, the mu variant, uh, the lambda variant, which are also in the wings, also variants of concern, are also Latin American. The delta came from India. So now we've got the Omicron. So there are, there are two variants. The majority haven't come or haven't been detected in South Africa. In fact, some aren't even in this country. So just to kind of start, you know, preface it with, with that. Now, certainly the beta was first detected here, and now the Omicron was first detected here. Why is that? Well, the one thing I'd like to think, we've got an excellent, we've got a world-class, we've got a superb uh, genomic surveillance uh, team that looks at this. So they pick it up very early. So even if it's circulating in other countries before it gets here, we pick it up very early before because we've got a good surveillance team which which can pick it up early. There is the issue that we do have a large population of individuals living, for example, with HIV, so they are partially uh, immunosuppressed. Their immune systems, uh, even though they've been vaccinated, don't clear the virus adequately. So you have quite a significant remnant of the virus that remains behind in these individuals, and that gives it an opportunity to multiply, even though they've been vaccinated, and to select for those mutations, as I mentioned earlier, which will duck the immune system and also be more transmissible. So that may be a factor, but I think there are other factors as well. If that latter part is a factor, then it would raise the question about whether immunocompromised people of any nature, not particularly HIV, anyone on immunosuppressants, etc., should really be, you know, having maybe longer isolation periods or, or longer treatments or surveillance. Because, you know, if, but obviously that isn't where we're at at the moment. No, we are, what, what you're doing with the immunosuppressant, and of course there's also people on cancer therapy, on uh, on, on drug, on, on uh, drugs which are immunosuppressant. They they should get a third booster dose if they've had uh, Pfizer, and they can. You know, this is part of the official EVDS. It's on the uh, electronic uh, vaccine data system. They can get a third dose, and they should get a third dose of Pfizer. People that are immunosuppressed. Which is great that you bring up. So to just tell everybody, listeners, that um, to do that, you just have to get your doctor to fill in a special EVDS form that shows that you have some immunosuppression. Yeah. And if, if you know someone in this position who's done two Pfizer's, for example, and or what's the period of time between the second Pfizer and the booster, that you, the minimum well, period? Well, the, the ideal six months. The reason for that is to uh, basically give the, get an optimal immune response. But that wouldn't apply to immunosuppressed individuals. I think they should get it, to, oh, I guess even a month after the last one. They should get it. So they response. just need to go because to their I, doctors, get that letter, and yeah, go for the shot. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll do the last part of our of our show with Prof. Barry Shub from from the NRCD and who really needs our community. So over to the air break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to the show. This is the last part of the show. I'm Dr. Daniel Israel. I'm speaking to Professor Barry Shub, who's really our expert advisor on COVID on so many levels. Barry, I thought it would be important for us to, to just clear up any misconceptions out there as to which tests do and don't work for this variant because 
I've certainly had a few questions from patients as to, I heard the antigen test isn't as sensitive. I heard the PCR is, uh, you know, so can, are, to our knowledge, are both tests still as sensitive in picking up these cases and specific? And the other, the other question is, um, is, um, all right, I'll come to the next question, but the clinical side afterwards. Let's start with the test. Yeah, basically the, the kind of bottom line is yes, both tests are still specific. I think where the confusion may have come in is that there was a signal in the PCR test that there was a variant coming on. Uh, but, but, the, but the bottom line is that they, they are both, equal, uh, they both still do work as, as they did with the previous variants. The, the rapid test, the antigen test is very good, very sensitive in picking up people that are already ill. Um, not quite so sensitive people that are asymptomatic carriers. So if somebody already has symptoms, um, and certainly are in this variant, it's really good enough for them to go for an antigen test. And if that test is negative, yes. do you then suggest they go for a PCR? If there's a high degree of suspicion, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um The other question is, I've seen overseas, we've had, there's been this, um, notion or, or policy that for three months after getting COVID, it's almost like a from a natural immunity, a person is is immune. But I've certainly seen in my own practice how people who have had COVID in the last three months have now got COVID again. Yeah, this is certainly like a, quite a game changer for us in terms of behaviour and being careful. Uh, can you comment on that? I mean, are we seeing infections close to previous infections? Yeah, yeah. This this is the whole kind of story. That this is not new. People relying on natural immunity. Natural immunity means, in other words, if they've been infected, how effective is the immunity following an infection? The problem is, in many people, it's very effective because also remember, from a natural infection, you also get mucosal. In other words, you get uh, infe- you get uh, immunity in the in the in the nose and the throat, which you don't get so much with the injectable vaccine. Um, but on the other hand, many people don't get a good immune response, particularly, in fact, people that are that are, are mildly infected or don't have any symptoms at all, they don't seem to mount such a good response. People that are more severely, they get a better immune response, which I guess is logical because there's much more virus stimulating the immune system. Uh, so we can't totally rely on natural immunity, unfortunately. And also, people that get uh, were infected with previous strains might not necessarily be as well protected against current strains. So we can't rely on natural immunity. This is why even people that have been infected can certainly get breakthrough infections and commonly do get breakthrough infections, sometimes fairly soon after they recover because they haven't mounted an adequate immune response. And also people that have been infected should still get vaccinated. Okay, and just the last point on on immunity is... We know that there are antibody tests out there. Um, one can go to a reputable, one of the reputable labs, ask for a COVID S antibody test, which for our, for, our, for the, those of us who don't know what that is, that's a spike protein and it will give you a quantitative measure as to how high your spike protein antibodies are. Now, as, as you've said, Prof, we don't know whether on this new variant, um, you know, how protective that will be, but, you know, I often have patients asking, my, my antibodies are 500, my antibodies are 2,000, my antibodies are 10,000. Do we have a, certainly pre, prior to, to, to this variant, do we have a measure as to what a good level of immunity is here, or are we just arbitrarily measuring numbers? No. 
I think the latter. And and Dan, that's a very good question because a lot of people go for these antibody tests and then they come back alarmed that they don't have antibodies. Now, we actually we advise people not to do not to get an antibody test, not to do that because it's confusing. Because both both ways, sometimes people that do have antibodies are not protected. Because, as you say, these are what you call ELISIS or immunoassays. doesn't necessarily test for protective antibodies. So having antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that you are protected. But more importantly, the other way around, a lot of people come back uh, after they've been vaccinated or sometimes after they recover from infection, and they are alarmed they don't have antibodies. And, you know, the immune system is a complex thing. It's neutralizing antibodies. It's non, non-neutralizing, blocking antibodies. And also, importantly, it's a cellular immunity. So it's a whole complex. And even if you don't have antibodies, it does not necessarily mean, and the vast majority of cases, it doesn't mean that you're not protected. You may still well be protected. So our advice is not to kind of waste your money, not to waste your energy, not to waste your anxiety, and just simply don't get antibody tested. There's no virtue in it, really. Okay, that's really, that really is good advice. I know that you have a commitment uh, coming up in the next hour, and I don't want to put you under pressure. So I think we'll, we'll end it here. Um, so just before I mean, before I end it off, any advice for the next for the upcoming holiday period for our community? Yeah, I've got two, two, two advices. Those who haven't been vaccinated, please get vaccinated. This is a free gift that you really can't spurn. You must, it's a safe, effective vaccine. Those who haven't Barry, been vaccinated. I, I don't know, in, other than someone who's had a direct strange allergy to, a vac- to the vaccine, I don't know of any contraindications for vaccination. I just, that's my, on the ground. Um, You're absolutely, absolutely correct. There are some, some contraindications for a specific vaccine. In other words, some people who had thrombosis, for example, should maybe avoid the Johnson and Johnson and go for the Pfizer vaccine. Some people who've had uh, allergic reactions or maybe had heart problems, avoid the Pfizer and try and get the Johnson and Johnson. But there's no contraindication for both of those vaccines. None at all. Absolutely, which means we should all be being vaccinated. All vaccinated. Okay, sorry, Ben, and your second bit of advice. And the second point, equally important, is that even if you've been vaccinated, these are excellent vaccines. They're not 100% perfect vaccines. And we've got a rapidly expanding fourth wave coming on us now, a new variant. Please, you have to carry out all those infection prevention measures which we hammer, the, the social gatherings, the physical distancing, hand-washing, and wearing masks correctly, please, I have to be uh, meticulously still carried out. Hopefully, this is not going to go on much longer. Hopefully, sometime next year we can stop it. But as it stands at the moment, this is critically important. Thank you, Barry. You've, 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 you continue to lead us all well but on a schools level, on a community level, on a government level. It is an absolute honor to have you and, and your years of experience. I mean, I, it's one, it's, ama- it's amazing how the world works. One would never have thought that it's, it's, you know, so many years into this, there would have been this major crisis upon the world, and all your experience and years and, and academic has really helped people on the real, real grassroots of, of, to, to function, to know what to do, schools to know when to open and close, etc. You, we are all very grateful to you, and 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 very much appreciate everything you do. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. It was a great pleasure being on. Thank you very much.